Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you in Fredericton. Rosie and I have been looking forward to being with you again. We've thoroughly enjoyed our time here back in July, and um, we've been waiting on God really to speak at this time. Um, it's a bit of an irony about singing, it's your breath in our lungs, because I particularly need that, having gone down with a chest infection in the last few days. So I'm praying that I will get through this, but I'm sure I will. So when waiting on God to know what to bring to you um, over this period of time, we're going to do a kind of mini-series from the book of Isaiah. And I've called it Living in the Day of Favour. Now, Isaiah is one of the, obviously, one of the great prophetic books in the Old Testament. And uh, it's one of the longest books. And it's, uh, it's been called by uh, one or two particularly astute theologians the fifth gospel. Because the book of Isaiah is all about Jesus. And it's in different sections. You don't kind of read it chronologically. When you read the book of Isaiah, um, you don't know sometimes whether you're in the immediate history, whether you're in something that is uh, talking about the coming of Jesus to earth, or about the new heavens and the earth. The thing is, when you really study the book, what you find is that any one point you can be at any point of those three things. So I hope that uh, you'll be able to follow this. So we're going to start this morning in Isaiah 59. Now, if you've got your Bible with you, turn to it. If you're Old Covenant and you've got your tablet, you can turn to that or your phone. But I'm going to encourage you over these three weeks to be looking at chapters 59, 60, and 61. Basically, the book of Isaiah is in three parts. So you've got chapters 1 to 35, which is one part, 35 through to 53, which is the second part, and then 53 through to the end, which is the third part, which is particularly about the establishment of the church, the kingdom, and looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And so we're going to be in the third part of Isaiah, Isaiah 59, 60 and 61. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's a bit long, but I will be referring to verses within the chapter as we go along. But I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and verse 20 to kind of bookend the chapter. So we get a diagnosis in verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or the ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not here. Well, that looks like bad news. <laughs> well, we better open up. 
Now we go to verse 19. And where God promises something, we have to diagnose it where the enemy is. For he will come like a rushing stream, which is the wind of the Lord's wrath. Now that is a strange verse because it can be translated from the Hebrew in two ways. So the more uh, the later translators have translated it, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. <coughs> but another translation of it, and both are valid, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. And we'll refer to those as we go along. Verse 20, And the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgressing, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or your children's offspring, from this time forth and forevermore, says the Lord. So, living in the day of favour and recalling this particular thought, the day of redemption. Now, I wonder how many of you have already slipped in your New Year's resolutions. Now, we may, may have made those resolutions at the end of December and going into the New Year. But we are 42 days or six weeks into the new year today. And I'm wondering if anyone here has managed thus far to keep their New Year's resolution. Let's have a show of hands. One. That's terrible. One. <laughs> now, just put your mind at rest. I am always very thankful for the concept and doctrine of God when it comes to making resolutions, especially when we find them impossible to keep. And sometimes after only a few days, we find we have them. So, eat more healthily, exercise more frequently, read my Bible every day, pray more, a whole host of things, but yet, with the best of intentions, we resolve to keep to this. Now, this last year in December, I did not make any New Year's resolution. So, I haven't broken any. Hallelujah. <laughs> but what I did do at the end of 2023 is to really seek God about the coming year. Now, there is a very personal reason for that. Because 2023 was, for me personally, one of the hardest years and most difficult years I've ever lived through. Now, I'll not go into detail, although when we were here in July, some of you knew uh, what, what was happening and you, you were very supportive and I really value that. I had a real attack on Satan, on my own integrity, the accusations and a real sense of condemnation. Now, although it was illogical, 
it was real. But through that, experience, God spoke to him then about handling conflict and emotional suffering. And it made me realize something of the agony that Jesus went through when he suffered for us. I did actually, during that, have some wonderful special personal encounters with God during this very time of my life. Now, as last year began to draw to a close, the situation began to get resolved. And the burden started to lift for me so weak. And my mind, as I was seeking the will of God for the new year, I began to pray, began to pray, Lord, please don't let me go through another year like that. Now there are seasons in the Christian life, sometimes of real blessing, and sometimes of battle, pressures, and difficulties. We are not carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease. We find that there are trials, temptations, and all kinds of pressures. Now we may not always handle those well. And when that happens, it can lead to temptation, faith struggles, and at worst, even doubting, sinning, and falling. But God never allows us beyond what we are able to bear. And we need to draw near to the Father and allow Him by His Holy Spirit to sustain us and keep us focused. And that's what I would like to do. The agony was still present during that time, but my faith did not waver. Now Paul writing to the Ephesians says that we must stand in what he calls an evil day. Now that is not only true of us personally, it's also true of the church in general. Over the centuries, there have been times of persecution, lukewarmness, faithlessness, and apparent diminishing. But these are placed in juxtaposition with times of extraordinary blessing, with powerful moves of God in revival. And Peter puts it in Acts chapter 3, verse 2, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Now, when we are going through what we may call an evil day, it's important to keep focus on God and pray for deliverance. So that is not only true in our personal walk with God, but it's also true for the church. Now over recent years, there have been many times of refreshing. And this church, as you know its history, was actually born in an era when God's Spirit was being poured out in extraordinary ways. Now although we receive times of decline, we can also believe God for revival, for restoration, for renewal. And these times and seasons are under God's hand. 
says, when God allows us to go through difficult times, it is important for us to trust his sovereign purpose, but also realize that satanic attacks can be real. And it's in these situations where we learn to trust and fight the good fight of faith. Words like, fight the good fight, stand in the evil day, are calls for us to pray and withstand the enemy. We do not passively wait just to see what happens. We live with a paradox of seeing God's sovereign hand, and yet we still pray for deliverance. And Jesus is our example for that. So in Psalm 22, where we hear the cry prophetically that Jesus utters on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We find him in the midst of his anguish and pain finding the eternal resilience to pray. And having prayed, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes on to say, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Jesus sees an end in you. He believes in his deliverance from the pain and agony. So, at the end of the year, there are no New Year resolutions. Just a desperate cry to the Father. Please don't let 2024 be like last year. And it's not wrong to say those kinds of things. Now, after a few moments, I felt I heard the voice of God then that I realized that 2024 would be a very significant personal anniversary for me. It was in January 1974, 50 years ago, that the process of re-sorting out my life was significant, and I'll explain why. Now, I'd been brought up in a loving Christian home. My mum and dad were in full-time Christian ministry. And uh, I, I said, my grandparents, I was taught to pray and read my Bible. And at the age of eight, I went forward in a children's home with a housekeeper who gave my life to Jesus. By the age of 12, I was conscious of preaching a church sermon in prayer and had a strong sense of the call of God on my life. I loved music. I was learning the piano. Competent cornet and trumpet player, and was starting to sing with the guitar in Christian meetings. This was 1958, it's very unusual. And I'm amazed that Caleb took us into that same low level tent this morning because I used to sing that with the guitar, like trying to copy the pop singers of the tent. It took me 15 years. I went on to train to 
fear of my picture, of, of wanting to get taller thereafter. And I continued in university to get a degree in education and uh, a diploma from the Royal College of Music in Suffolk, Durham. And I soon got a job, a prestigious job actually, as a director of music in a high school. I was now married to Rosie, but my ambition in music began to take over my life. I became successful as a composer, a performer, and my ambition was taking me further and further away from God. My lifestyle became not the lifestyle of a Christian. And it was a difficult period in our life and very painful for Rosie. And in January 1974, Rosie was now pregnant with our first child. And I was beginning to realize that I needed to get my life sorted out with God. So we started going back to church and the journey began. And uh, that church is one of the many things we minister there, pray for me, look after me. And eventually I went full time and became chaplain for the call of God. So, at the end of December, as I was praying for a better year of 2024, I realized that this would be the 50th anniversary of God rescuing me from my lifestyle and bringing me back to Him. And our son Luke was born in July. Now, I suddenly felt memories come flooding back to me as I was praying at the beginning of the year. And uh, these memories, as they came flooding back, uh, I remembered that 50 years in the Bible is significant. You see, in the Jewish calendar, it was called the year of Jubilee and uh, a year of favor. And in Leviticus 25, we read about the year of Jubilee being instituted amongst the Jewish nation. It was that every 50 years, there was to be a year of releasing people from their debts, releasing all slaves, and returning property to those who owned them that were not living in it at the time. And it began with the borrowing of the shofar proclaiming a year of freedom. And it was one of the Jewish things that was established in the book of Leviticus. But unfortunately, the Jewish people were not very good at keeping it. There is hardly any record of it being kept in the Old Testament. And it is why they were eventually taken into captivity under God's judgment. However, that year of Jubilee is a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus to bring a day of favor. The year of Jubilee speaks of the gospel age and the connection is made between Isaiah 61, which we will come to eventually, which Jesus quotes in Luke 4. So when Jesus went into the synagogue and said, Lord, the Lord is upon you, he was quoting Isaiah 
as it was actually filmed at that year of Jubilee. Now, another element in that process of what was required simulated in my memory was that in 1995, I was at a John Limber conference in Dartmouth and putting on a fun play. And I wasn't actually involved in speaking at that particular conference. I, I was just there enjoying the scenery from there. And uh, after John Wimber had spoken, Robert was putting on the fun play, he prayed for me. So I inevitably spent time on the floor. And as I was on the floor, I began to write a song in my head. Day of favor, day of bread, this is the year of jubilee. And the spirit of the sovereign Lord is falling now on me. Let the oil from heaven flow from the presence of the king. Jesus, let your glory fall as we worship, as we sing. Get the whole song, two, two verses, put in my head in the dream. So I went home, got my guitar out, and just put the whole thing together. And that song became the theme song solely of March 
and Isaiah 59 to this passage is that is like the trumpet call reminding us that we have no way of experiencing God's favor without an understanding of the atonement. In other words, the demonstration of God's favor begins at the cross. So, to round this up, I'm going to pick up the theme in Isaiah 59 and simulate what it means to live in the day of favor. And I'm going to put it under three headings. And I'll be reasonably brief, as brief as I can be, to explain that. And I hope that you'll be able to take these headings and just look at that chapter and take it into your heart. First of all, we have the tragedy of separation. Secondly, we have the blessing of God's intervention. And thirdly, the promise of restoration. Now, can I just say, when I use this term, the day of favor, that what we are actually talking about is the gospel age. It is the age in which we live. But within that gospel age, there are times of special favor, and I believe that this year is going to be one for you as a church, as I believe it is going to be for me personally. But whether it's special favor or just living in what we might call the day of favor, the day of grace, the day of jubilee, it all begins at the cross. And so we're going to look first of all at the tragedy of separation. Verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened so that it cannot save, or his ear dull so that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now remember that Isaiah is speaking to God's people. Now these two verses reveal the problem of every human being who's ever lived. There is a gulf between God and humanity. God is totally holy. Everything about him is pure. He never makes mistakes. He always acts justly, but he always acts in accordance with his own character. Unbelievers reject God because they have opinions that if there is a God, he must be like what we think he should be. That God is completely other than us. And yet we as humans are made in the image of God. We are like those ancient ruins where a building and up to plaster has become ravaged, perhaps by water or neglect or some natural meteorological phenomenon, earthquake or hurricane or some other disaster. But as we look at it, we can see what it once could have looked like. The ruined relic was once resplendent and glorious. Now, Calvin says that there are relics of God in fallen man. So, although we are made in the image of God, 
that image has been marred by disobedience, evil desires, what the Bible calls the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So the notice from this passage gets first cursing hands defiled with blood, fingers with iniquity, lips speaking lies, tongue muttering wickedness. Sin has a very human face. Attitudes, behavior, hands, figures, fingers, lips, tongue, all part of our everyday living. Sin touches us. Sin is also social. Speech runs to evil. The way of peace they do not know. No one who treads on them knows peace. Justice is thrown back and righteousness stands far away. The truth has stumbled in the public square. Well, you get to hear that even when you come to our evangelical to know what that means. Now, I'm sure, because we're Christian people and saved and delivered from the power of sin, I'm sure we do not need reminding that there is an almost total disconnect between the general social and moral climate of the world today and between Christian truth and righteousness. Morality has been turned upside down. Biblical beliefs about marriage, sexuality, and so on have become ostracized by secular humanist programs that have been tarnished with Judeo-Christian values. And even criminalizing in public life, politicians have often been found guilty in integrity, honesty, and morality. The Western world has essentially lived with a foundation of Christian and biblical ethics that now become more and more Christian, now become more and more marginalized. Now Isaiah prophetically sees this happening. And Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, says this, in the last days when he describes what he feels is happening in Christian and in universities. And sin is also spiritual. It separates us from God. It says God has turned his face from us. I remember one time when uh, there was a season when our kids and grandkids were all living in the same house. And I was fascinated to watch my own children raising their children. And I remember one time when one of the grandchildren was being disobedient and I watched how my daughter-in-law Lou handled it. She said, look mummy in the face. Now the naughty grandchild would not do it. Eventually he came down and fully showed he did. And of course there was forgiveness and mercy. Now I hated doing that as a Christian. But this is how Also, 
how much have we allowed the values of this world affect our thinking, even within the church, and the behaviour? We must remember that Isaiah was writing to God's people. So today it is a message to God's people through his servant. We need to pray and remember what we are delivered from. And you know, one of the great things about singing songs about the cross and the songs we sing in worship are about the blood it's good to remember what we are delivered from. The gospel is not superficial. It deals with the utmost depths of human problem, rebellion, and sinfulness. And to stand in worship and to lift our hands and look God in the face is the most wonderful and sublime thing of Christian teaching that we can do. Don't just sing the song. Let the power of your deliverance from the, from the perfect cross be the motivation to shout our praise in awe of you and not in fear of us. Hallelujah. So, that's the diagnosis. Now, as we go to look at the blessing that God brings upon us, we come to the second part of the chapter where we see God breaking in and causing a man into his human nature. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man, now no person can solve the problem of a human life. There is no man. And wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God intervenes. The sovereignty of God means that he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and to whom he wants. But his sovereignty is not capricious or random. His timing is always perfect and with a cosmic, eternal heart. And verse 19 gives us a hint of what that eternal heart and purpose of God is. So, they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Man in this desperate condition has hope because God has an eternal purpose and we're included. The extremities of the globe will be impacted by God breaking in. We now have one of the most exciting verses of the Old Testament. For he will come like a rushing stream which the winds of the Lord drive. The imagery of the stream and the winds speak of the Holy Spirit. A tsunami of Holy Spirit activity is promised. Wave after wave after wave of Holy Spirit blessing crashing on the shores of this world. 
and with devastating impact, rotting away the rebellion and the evil that has polluted the earth. In other words, revival is threatened. Now, as I've said, there is another way of translating that verse. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift out a standard against him. God floods in and overwhelms the evil one. Now, let me ask you this. is about the coming of Jesus. And the Redeemer will come to Zion. The weight of this prophecy is about the coming of Jesus. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, shall not depart from you, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, it's lovely to teach in young Christians at school. You know, they don't understand every word. Parents, don't you worry. Let us make sure there is no sin lingering within us. 
and let us be so filled with the Holy Spirit to see this glorious church being made. Say a faith stand with me in this moment of worship. Amen? Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you your word is clear. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit Come as we bring such a revelation this evening, such a revelation of clarity this evening from God. I want to pray that this evening speaking, that this will be the beginning of favor for this church, for this building, for this new church that we have just started. We want to pray that we will mix the world with faith so that we are.